right, good evening, everyone. And there we go. So I've used this analogy before. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the last song with the lights being off uh, put me in a bit of a trance, so it's going to take me a little bit to, to get out of that. I've, I've used this example before, but I shamelessly use it again just because it's so powerful. And that is the, the movie Children of Men. I've asked you before, who, who's seen that movie? It's a British sci-fi movie. And the, the, the premise or the plot of that movie is basically that, that women uh, or mankind rather has become infertile and they cannot reproduce and the whole world just descends into chaos. So you've got the, uh, Britain, England is the last little outpost standing, but you can just see the chaos and there's the youngest boy in the world called Baby Diego, and I think he's like 25 years old, and, and he dies, and it's just terrible. Everybody's mourning because he's the youngest baby in the world. And, and uh, what I find interesting is just that the whole world, like I said, descends into chaos because they realize in just a few years there will be nobody left to remember a thing. And there's this one scene that I really enjoy where the protagonist of the movie, he goes to visit his brother, and his brother is very high up in the British government, and he's, uh, and, and you've got the chaos in the streets, and then when you go into his penthouse type thing, you've got classical music, and you even have Picasso's Guernica there in the background, presumably saved from Madrid and all the chaos. And, and they have their tea and their servants, and they look over a very gray London, and at one point, the guy just turns to his brother and says, how do you do it? How do you continue to go on like this, knowing that in a few years, there will be nobody left to remember a thing? And then he says, you know what it is? You know what it is? I just don't think about it. I just don't think about it. There's this English village, and this happens around the world, but the government bought up the land and all the houses and paid them generously, and there was a project scheduled that in a couple of years, well, let's say one or two years, they were going to build a massive dam and that whole village would be submerged by it. So they were compensated generously. But a guy who grew up in that village noted that every time he would come back, I think he's a journalist, every time he would come back to that village, it would just deteriorate a little more. Even though the, the construction deadline is only in, in a year or two from now, he would notice that people aren't mowing their gardens. They aren't planting new flowers. They aren't painting their walls. They aren't tending to, uh, to, to, to their property. And when you ask them why, they would say, what's the use? In a couple of years from now, all of this will be underwater. There's no point in continuing to pretend like what we do here on this yard really matters. And then another example is, is that of Collateral, the movie Collateral, where Tom Cruise's peroxide and he's talking to his taxi driver. He's a hitman, by the way. He talks, he talks to his taxi driver, and his taxi driver says, why are you killing these people? What's with you, man? And then at one point, Tom Cruise just says, what's with you? What's with you? Look, at, look around you. We are um, two dots of people on a speck of dust trapped in a universe, one of many, and nobody's listening. The universe neither knows nor cares. Nobody's listening. And I think... What these movies and this example of the English Dam, what it illustrates is that if there is no future, then there is no hope and there is no meaning. Is that clear enough? 
If, if we cannot see a future for ourselves, and maybe ourselves individually or corporately, then what happens now becomes just a little bit meaningless. And the Apostle Paul is talking about this future hope and the meaning and the direction that our lives need to take in the now, in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we are going to start a series on 1 Corinthians uh, next week, and I'm very excited about it, and you must please invite your friends. It is impossible that we are the only friends that we have, okay? That would be sad. So we need to just uh, share the love and, and, and bring them along. And I know it's cold here, and we will soon have hot chocolate. And if you're watching online, by the way, shame on you. Join us here in, in person. Uh, we, we've got a very strict COVID protocol here, so you, you're, more, you're more than welcome. Now, now in, in 1 Corinthians 15, it's that very famous passage on the resurrection. And Paul goes into great detail in saying that the resurrection was an objective fact. And he says, uh, he, he appeared to, uh, to, to Peter. He appeared to, um, to James, the brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic. He appeared to more than 500 people at once. Um, and then finally he appeared to me. And he's saying that <coughs> this is not an airy-fairy thing. This is an objective fact. This is not a little bit of inspiration that we need to get through the day. This is something that happened in time and space, and it is everything. But then he goes beyond that. And from verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be, de to be destroyed is death. And then I want to jump over to verse 32. And he says, What do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. I tell you, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. not just this, this subjective thing that Christians believe. And, and friends, we can also say that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is a joke, and a bad joke at that. So, so it's, it's crucial. But the second thing that we need to understand is that the resurrection has massive implications. It's got massive implications. And if we are just focused on it as a historical fact, then we miss the implications that Paul is inviting us into here. So <clears throat> the first word that I want to just look at that, that, that sort of unpacks that, those implications is the word, are the words first fruits. Christ is the first fruit of, uh, his resurrection is the first fruit of this new movement that he has launched. Now, in an agrarian society, 
everybody knew what first fruits were. We don't really know that anymore. But back then, everybody had a farm. Even if you were the goldsmith, even if you were the tax collector, everybody had some form of uh, farming going on. And there was a feast, the, the feast of the first fruits. And what they would do is, when that first apple came, when that first uh, orange, lemon, avocado, you know, whatever came, they would bring the first ones and they will have a feast. And why it would be significant is they would say, ah, there's more to come. This is exciting. There's more to come. The harvest is on its way. Now, I'm not sure who of you have got fruit trees at home. Does anybody have, have that? Um, I know uh, Hanyu, they've got like this huge avo tree. And I can't help but just, uh, every time I go there, I spend about five minutes just looking at the, the avo tree. How, how is it carrying? And, and when, I, um, when I meet uh, Hanyu's father-in-law, I can't help myself but talk about the avo tree. How is it carrying this year? Is it, is it doing well? And then what would often happen, I mean, they've got now a massive tree, but everybody's got a little small tree. I've got this little uh, uh, lemon tree at home, and then I would brag about my six lemons that it's carrying. Say, so I think it's going to be a bumper crop this year. But the fact of the matter is that you are excited about the first little fruit that forms because it's going to say, there's more to come. There's more to come. And that is what Jesus' resurrection means. It is basically a way of saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. There's a lot more to come. Now, presumably, the Corinthians believed in Jesus' resurrection, so they, they, they bought that bit, but they didn't really believe that we will be resurrected as well. Maybe they thought they had some sort of Greek understanding of death and thought that we just sort of uh, enter into the shadowy realm of, of Hades. And, and, and they made this, this, this distinction. That is possible. And what is Paul saying? He's basically saying, you guys are stupid. He's saying, you are stupid. Because if, if, the, dead, if, if the dead's not raised, and if that's not our future, and if, if Jesus' resurrection was just this random, interesting, once-off event that has very little implications on what's going to happen in the future, he says, why on earth am I battling wild beasts in Ephesus? Did you hear that bit? He's saying, dude, if this was just an interesting uh, Houdini act, then why the hell am I risking everything? I've put everything on the line. Now, Many Christians in the Roman world, for the entertainment of the Romans, this was before rugby and Netflix, they, they would put them in, uh, in, in an amphitheater or in a theater. If you go to the amphitheater, not the amphitheater, the Colosseum in, in Rome, then you can even see the gates and the whole intricate system that they had below the floor of the amphitheater where animals would just uh, uh, you know, appear instantly and I think it made for good viewing and it's just hundreds of thousands of, of humans and animals that died in this and they would usually use slaves and sometimes Christians to fight those, those wild beasts. Whether Paul really fought in, in that arena is debatable because it was a Roman citizen and that wasn't actually allowed, but definitely many of his friends would have. And maybe he's using, using that as a metaphor to say, uh, like, life is very, very difficult for me. And if this is not for some future hope, then, then I'm an idiot. So he says, there is a future hope that we have. And Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of that hope. 
And that changes how we live in the now. He says, without that future hope, he's got this, this funny line. He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that would have been the maxim that most people would have known back then, probably a form of Epicureanism and uh, sort of a low-level version of Epicureanism. I know true Epicureans will be offended by this, but at least a a low-level understanding of that would be uh, there's no God, so we can just as well indulge our passions and, and, and just chase after every little bit of pleasure that we can find. But there's nothing... There's nothing beyond this. So let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul is saying, if we do not have a future, these guys are right. He's saying, if we do not have a future, the guys of Children of Men who made that movie and and who acted the way they did, they were right in in responding the way. Those people who lived in that, that village where the dam was built, they were right in not fixing anything because there was no future there. If you cheat on your wife... If you are a dodgy politician, a dodgy businessman, if you have crazy parties, if you acquire as much as you possibly can, or if you consume as much much as you possibly can, and your life is basically just about taking photos in front of fancy places and sharing it on social media, uh, then that's fine. Without a future, why wait for marriage to have sex? Why do that? If there's no future, if there's no ultimate judgment, if there's no um, God on the other side of things, why even wait for your wife to have sex? If everything is, if, if that's our future, then everything becomes just a little bit meaningless. Why spend your time tutoring in Mamalodi on Saturdays? You can, you can use your time so much better. There's this bumper sticker that I, I think I saw it in America. This guy with, he, he was going, he was... Um, pulling his jet ski to a dam or something. And he just had this bumper stick on the trailer that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. The one who dies with the most toys wins. In other words, get a jet ski, get a ski boat. Um, let's just get as much as we can. And the one who dies with the most, ha, we win. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Get as much pleasure out of life and then we go. The Corinthians also presumably had, a, not, not presumably, we know this, had a very low view of the flesh. So, so these Christians said, look, you've got earthly desires, bodily desires, and that, that those bodily desires means that, ah, you know, sometimes you want to have sex, sometimes you want to eat a lot, sometimes you want to drink, but what's, what's important is what's happening spiritually. So yes, you can sleep with the prostitute, just, you know, honor God in the process as well, <laughs> okay? So they thought they... they, they they saw a massive uh, loophole in the whole system. And Paul is saying, don't you understand that, that this body is also what is holy? You can't make that stupid distinction that you guys are making. And this body will be resurrected and turned into a new resurrected body. But this flesh is not necessarily bad. He's saying that this flesh must be transformed, yes. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus was God and he he took on flesh, and that says something about flesh. It means that at least flesh is not all bad if God took on that form. And that's how they justified their, their sexual exploits. And Paul says, don't, don't. He says in verse 34, you have no knowledge of God. He's saying this to a church, by the way. You guys have no knowledge of God. Now, they would have said, 
whoa, 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 whoa. We know that creed, because in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, he's actually quoting a creed. Uh, I am uh, telling you what has been handed over to me, that God raised on the third day, that Jesus rose on the third day, and then he appeared to this and this and this. That was a creed that they used in the early church. And many people who say, ah, oh, no, the resurrection accounts are just so, uh, so late and after the fact, that creed dates to about... I don't know, something like 37 AD, 40 AD. It is super, super early. There's no doubt in our mind that the early followers of Jesus in his life who were associated with him, they believed in his physical resurrection. All right, so don't believe anything that you watch on history or National Geographic about that. Now, the, uh, he's saying, you guys know that cognitively, and that's fine, but you, you don't know God. Now, that... That should worry you just a little bit because that's something that I think we can be guilty of. Yeah, dialogue. We can know the facts, but we, but we don't know God. So you see, in the Bible, when it talks about knowledge of God, it doesn't just talk about cognitive knowledge of God. More, more often than not, it talks about relational knowledge of God. Do you know God relationally? Now, The reality is that this resurrection, you can know about it, and you can, you can even claim it when you, when you uh, recite the apostolic creed, and that's all fine. But has it really sunk into your bones? Has it changed your, your life and how you live it? Now, last week, we spoke about the theme of the garden in the resurrection, and John goes crazy on this one theme. He says, and Joseph of Arimathea, he had a garden, and in the garden he had a tomb. And then when Mary came to the garden where the tomb was, um, there she, she didn't find Jesus' body. And then she spoke to Jesus, but she didn't know it was Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. Garden, 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 garden. What are they trying to say? They're trying to say, ah, we're back in, we've got a new Eden that has been created. There's a new garden, and this is very exciting. God is starting over, and there's this bright future. And then Mary, and nobody else for that matter, understands what happened, and then Jesus says, don't you understand? It's a little bit like a seed that has to go into the ground and die and raise up. Again, we've got this garden analogy. And now, here in 1 Corinthians 15, what do we have? Jesus is the first fruits. His resurrection was the first fruits. Again, it's garden, garden, garden. Now, when we hear the term first fruits, it should remind us of another very famous passage in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus, or at least Paul in this, in this case, is saying, you believe in the resurrection, that's fine. You've got this nice theology, that's fine. But has it really sunk into your bones? Is it a part of you? Are you living out the reality of this resurrection? If Jesus is the first fruits, then we have to be carrying fruit in our lives. And you first have the set of vices that, that, that Paul shares. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, uh, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. <laughs> And when I hear the, that list, you know what I, what I hear? Sexual immorality, orgies, impurity, sensuality, sorcery. Those, those immediately catch, catch my attention. You know what I don't hear? 
divisions, dissensions, rivalries, fits of anger, jealousy, strife, enmity. If you go through that list, the sins that we as a church typically pick on are in the minority. The sins that we as a church, and I've seen this in in so many other churches, specialize in, we overlook. I mean, if you... I've heard so many stories of, 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 of a worship band just being rife with, with division and jealousy and, and dissension and rivalries. I mean, that's, that's just where you've got a group of people together and more often than not when, got, when you have a few musos together, then you just have that. And then um, if, you, if you go to some of these bigger churches, then, then people are very competitive, the pastors among each other. You know, who do the people like the most? Who's working harder than the other one? Constantly measuring. No, 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 that person, I'm a little bit worried about his life. I'm a little bit worried about his theology. I'm a little bit, and you've got all of this, this, this language. And, and that's not something that, that only the bad guys, the heathens do somewhere out there. It's here. Yeah. So, so when we look at the, 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 the work of the flesh, these vices, we need to know that 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 is something that we struggle with here, right, in dialogue. And it's tragic because we're not living in light of the resurrection. And then Paul shares the fruit of the Spirit, and he says it's love, it's joy, it's peace, 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 and it's peace. I was uh, trying to say peace and patience together. I must just be patient. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we've heard those words too many times to really, I don't know, think of it much, to, to think that it's something worth pursuing. But let's just think about it for a second, and we're not going to go into any sort of depth, but love. What is love? Well, let's, let's ask what is love by asking what is the opposite of love. Anyone? Hate, apathy. Those are good guesses. In, in, in 1 John, there's this lovely line that says, love casts out all fear. Fear. So it's possible, even probable, that the opposite of love is fear. Why fear? Because when you, when you love someone and when you love something, you open yourself up. You become vulnerable. You risk and, and what often happens is that fear inhibits you from opening up. It doesn't want to take that risk. And that makes love impossible. I, I know these people who, every time we reach out to them, they, I, I don't experience them as hateful people, but I experience them as fearful people. And even in a friendship, if you reach out to them and say, how are you doing? And it'll be be so nice. Maybe we must go play golf sometime and just reach out. Then those walls just go up immediately. And they just refuse to get out of their their fort that they've built for themselves. And it's driven by fear. Many of us refuse to give any relationship a chance or to put ourselves out there out of fear. Many of us... Uh, whether this is on a friendship level, whether this is on a romantic level, I mean, you name it. You don't want to 
risk a church again because you've been hurt in the previous church. That is a lack of love, and it is self-preservation, self-protection. It is fear. So we need to love. That's part of being, that's part of living in the light of the resurrection, of the first fruits. Joy. Again, we're not going to go into any sort of depth, but joy is not happiness. Joy is not even an emotion. It is living in the reality of the resurrection. And that means that it doesn't matter what happens around you, you've got this firm foundation, you are steadfast, you are immovable, and you know that you have a destiny that cannot be touched. That's joy. Peace. I'm not going to expand on that. What about patience? Patience is a vice in our world. If you are patient, it means that you do not get things done. People don't like to employ patient people. They like to employ impatient people who get things done very quickly. It's a virtue. But anybody can be impatient. I find it so revealing. Uh, <laughs> and maybe, you know, some people uh, do, do better at this than, than others. But I so often run into a shop and then I say, excuse me, can you tell me where that is? And then the person would just say, hello, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine as well. Uh, you can find that over there. Or you go to a gate and you ask directions. Excuse me, I'm, I'm going to this, this, this. Hello, how are you? You know, it's, it, it, and, and they just school you there. Patience. Do we have patience? But you know what's very much a part of patience? And these words are, are not very well translated. It's very difficult to get the original meaning. But, but to be patient is to also be a forgiving person to be relationally patient with other people, to give them second and third and fourth chances, to not have an irritable spirit. That's part of patience. What about kindness? Kindness is basically the opposite of envy. It sounds like such a kindness being, oh, you can come through the door, you're so welcome. I mean, that's a very low-level version of that. But kindness is where you experience joy when somebody is lifted up. You enjoy their success. Even if you aimed for the same thing, you can appreciate their success. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Goodness. Goodness, I think one can also uh, translate it as charity. These things didn't exist in the ancient Greco-Roman world. By the way, patience didn't exist as a virtue. You can't read any Aristotle or any Plato where these guys are listing their virtues and saying, oh, patience is a virtue, it's very important. No, man, there, there was nothing like patience being a virtue in the, in the Greco-Roman world. Paul says, patience, fruit of the Spirit. Charity, fruit of the Spirit. Paul continues, he says, faithfulness is important. In other words, to be dependable, to be committed. You're the same in the dark as you are in the light. Are we those kinds of people? What about gentleness? Gentleness seems so wishy-washy. Gentleness, you know, there's, there's almost sort of a soundtrack to that. That's just humility. Humility. Humility is not thinking more about yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Do we live in that kind of reality? And then lastly, self-control. Chastity. Chastity, by the way, was also not a virtue in the 
in the Greco-Roman world. Nobody there thought that if you refrain from sexual activity, it's, it's virtuous. They, they thought self-control in any way or form is something that, that slaves had to do. Slaves had to be patient. Slaves had to control themselves, not the powerful. Slaves were dependent on charity. It's not something that the powerful worried about. So Aristotle and these guys, as a matter of fact, anti uh, Wright lists four of these virtues. He says charity, chastity, um, uh, what was the other one? Charity, chastity, uh, okay, well, you just, you just have to believe me that they are four. And, uh, and, and these patients is the other one. No, no, temperance is a very... Uh, ancient virtue. Anyways, these things just came into, into the world back then and it just changed the way people thought. And, and the reason why this, 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 this happened is because people realized that we cannot remain unchanged by this resurrection. It's the first fruit of, of, of our future hope and because of this future hope we have, we need to change as well. We need to start bearing fruit. So here's my question to all of us. Are we a little bit better at this than we were last year this time? Just a little bit. Are we a little bit better at these things than we were last year this time? I'm not sure I can say yes to that question. I am ashamed to see the state of my heart with the smallest political event or, uh, you know, currently at our house we, we don't have water or power and it's, it's not even load shedding, it's like something else. I think it's cable and reservoir theft. And, uh, and my heart does not go into nice places. It's definitely not patient. It, uh, and, and then I'm irritable with everybody else who really didn't do anything wrong. My, my children just become slightly more annoying than they already are. And uh, there's not a lot of fruit. I, I find myself experiencing yeah, a little bit of a road rage and just getting so angry and so self-righteous. And when I, when I get the opportunity and there's a bit of a traffic jam and these people are going in the left lane, I would stop those people in the left lane with everything I have. And I would police that left lane. And if, if taxis are driving past me and sort of on the gravel, then I get great pleasure out of them ruining their cars, trying to get past me. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that there's sufficient change in me. I'm not sure that I am being transformed by by the movement that Jesus started. I think the reason we sometimes get stuck is because we don't garden enough. If your tree is not producing, then you have to dig around it and you need to put compost in, you need to water it, you need to put fertilizer in. Perhaps you need to visit other people with similar trees. Perhaps you need to go to a tree seminar or YouTube, how to cultivate your avocado. Uh, maybe there are books to read. Maybe there are people to see. Uh, maybe you must just spend time with your tree. The, the fact of the matter is that if we want to bear fruit, then that is what we need to do. We need to garden. We need to practice the spiritual life together 
and in an attempt to, to bear more fruit, I think we often think that it's just something that happens automatic. And, and that is not the case. It takes a lot of work. C.S. Lewis has this great quote, obviously, where he says, the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods and he is going to make good his words. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, but he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into God or God or goddesses, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly though of course on a smaller scale. His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. We are to reflect God. The, the image, the idea of an image being, being a mirror, an image of God is, is so telling and the responsibility of it is huge. It means that we ought to be an angled mirror. And when somebody looks at you, they see the angle and it reflects back to God and they can see God when they look at you. That's the kind of life that we are supposed to live, where, where God is revealed when people look at us. Is that the kind of lives that we are, are living? And friends, this journey can be hard, and the world does not reward these virtues. I, I've spent a lot of time you know, trying to work in racial reconciliation spaces, and, uh, and it will look like there's, there are a few breakthroughs, and then you will just see um, the smallest event just deteriorating. It's five steps back for every one step forward. Um, this, this church, there's been a lot of work that, 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 that's gone into this church by different people, and it's, it's still small, and we would like it to be bigger and to have more of an impact. Pastorally, one would put in the hard yards with people, and you would just see very little change, and they would just go back into the bad habits that they had before and just be missing in action, and, uh, and hours upon hours, and... and Lots of money that's been poured in there and, 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 and prayer, and you don't see much of a change. Evangelism, you would speak to skeptics often, and it would look like they are warming up to it, and it would look like there's a move in them, and then there's just a block, and it just stops, and there's nothing. And sometimes I just get so depressed in my own spiritual formation when I just look at my own heart, and I think I have the audacity to stand here and preach to millions and 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 in my life there's nothing uh, that is that that, that that one can write home about in terms of spiritual formation and i i almost want to give up and and i you know I, w I would be intentional about something and then the smallest thing would happen in my life and i just find myself again, into, in, in those old bad habits. I find it encouraging what Paul says, and it was the last verse that we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 
that all of these things can be very demoralizing, whether it's our own spiritual formation, the people around us, or uh, the, the things that we are doing, and we are just a little bit frustrated. But in verse 58 of chapter 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We need to hold on to that. We need to be steadfast. We need to be immovable. And we need to always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, your, your labor is not in vain. I need to remind myself, oh, wow, there is this glorious future. I need to remind myself, oh, wow, the, the, the event of, of Jesus rising from the dead wasn't just a once-off thing in history, and now we're just sort of going through the motions. No, we are part of this massive movement that is supposed to just change this world, to just bring a little bit of heaven to overlap with earth here. That is our mission. That is our future. I've got work to do. And sometimes we struggle to see that light at the end of the tunnel, and that is why Paul invites us to look back into the tunnel and see the light at the beginning of the tunnel. To look at the resurrection and to see where God punched a hole in, in the very uh, essence, the very fabric of this world. And even though things can maybe just get monotonous or sometimes just depressing and sometimes just gloomy, to be steadfast to be immovable. One can draw that inspiration from just seeing Jesus. Now, uh, Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee is one of, my, one of my favorite characters there. He's obviously walking around Mordor and it's quite depressing and it's just orcs and uh, what do you call those, those flying things again? The Nazgul. Uh, this morning I, th I said the mentors and I saw people laughing. I was uh, mi mixing up my, <laughs> just saw the mentors and witches and uh, Voldemort flying in the air and Samwise says no. Uh, and and, and it's, it's so depressing and Samwise is in this massive hole and then he, says, then he says this, or at least Tolkien says this. And they're peeping among the cloud above a dark tor high up in the mountains Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it melted his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. I think that twinkle, that star, for us is Jesus. And it is the resurrection specifically. And sometimes we lose focus because we, we are just overwhelmed by our circumstances or maybe just the monotony of it, maybe just the mundanity of it. We need to look back at the resurrection and we need to reflect on the future that is promised this is the first fruits and only when we see that massive event and we see our, our our glorious future will we be able to sustainably bear fruit in this world let's pray lord jesus we come to you as broken broken people and although 
you scored this massive victory over death and you, you started this glorious movement where you are sometimes just stuck and overwhelmed by our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that, that we will not lose focus on our own sanctification. Lord Jesus, we pray that we will be the type of people that are just bearing slightly more fruit than we did last time, uh, this year, uh, last time this year, what? Last year. <laughs> we pray, Lord, that, uh, that, we will, that we will bear fruit and that we will practice these things, Lord. And some of these things we, we, we just... We just hear, and it's not something that, that is running over our hearts or, or, or prompting us into action, but help us to bear the fruit that Paul is describing here in Galatians 5, to work on it. Help us to tend to our garden, Lord Jesus. Help us to be trees that are planted by the water and that is producing day in and day out. Lord Jesus, this thing cannot just happen through sheer will. It is something that happens the more and more we look at you, the more and more that we are changed by you. So Lord, help us to spend time in prayer, in scripture, in community, to get that view, to get that image. And the more and more time we spend there, the more and more, Lord, we ask that you will transform us. Help us to not lose focus on the wonderful thing that happened in your death and resurrection and the beautiful future that we have. And help us, Lord, to live accordingly, to live in light of the light. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.